hear from the word of the Lord from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Let's say this together. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Our King has come, and we ask him now to come and bless our time together, to rule in our hearts, to show us his glory. So lift up your voice, open the gates of praise, and let us sing together to our mighty King. Come thou almighty King, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise, Father all glorious, or all victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. Come thou incarnate Lord. Gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend. Come and thy people bless and give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. Come holy comforter, thy sacred witness bear. In this glad hour, thou who almighty art now rule in every heart, and there from us depart spirit of power. To thee, great one in three, eternal praises be, and seven. Thy sovereign majesty may we in glory see And to eternity love and adore Well, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ To whom we have just sung and prayed asking for his help, for his worship. And happy Lord's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to you. Thanks for tuning in to this online worship service of Desert Springs Church. We're so glad you've done so. And we want you to know that we have already been praying for you, whoever you are, even if we've prayed for you not yet by name. Perhaps you're watching this at the recommendation of a friend and perhaps you wouldn't call Desert Springs Church your church home, or perhaps you don't yet have a church home. Perhaps you don't yet even call yourself a Christian. Well, we say welcome to you, and we would love to hear from you. We would love to know that you're out there. We'd invite you just to send a, a pretty bland email, if necessary, to info at dscabq.com. As I said, it'd be great to just hear from you and let, you, let us know that You've tuned into this. 
We'd also love to answer any questions you might have about this church or about things you might hear in this worship service, and we would love to pray for you. So share that with us. And we would love to pray for our members as well, as we do, as we have been. We've been praying for you, and if we can pray for you in some specific way, please do share that, and our leaders will pray. Again, email that to info at dscabq.com. Well, we want to thank those of you who have given food and water through Desert Springs Church to the Navajo Nation in recent weeks. Every Tuesday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., there's been a collection of food taken up here at our front doors. And uh, I got to see some of that this past Tuesday and how encouraging it was, how sweet it was to see people in person, not just at a grocery store with masks on. But, um, well, thank you. We're so thankful for your giving to that ministry. And more is still needed indeed. The situation on the Navajo Reservation is dire and continues to be. One out of every 74 Navajo have COVID. They have less access to health care, less access to food. Pastor Johnny, who ministers on the eastern side of the res, he's been coming, uh, he's been communicating with Josiah, our missions minister, keeping him up to date about these bleak circumstances that he's observing. He reports that he's finding people, he said, in starvation mode. He's been leading other pastors and checking in on homes because you don't know what's going on inside. And they have found some who've died there and died alone. Well, these neighbors need our prayers and also our continued help. And so they need... Here's a list. Here's a shopping list for you if you can. They need canned meat or fish, soup, cans of fruits and vegetables, peanut butter, pasta, brown rice, beans, cereal, and even non-food items like toiletries and paper goods and cleaning supplies. So we'll be taking up another collection again this coming Tuesday, 9 to 11 here at Desert Springs uh, at our front door. And if you're able to come uh, in the next week or two, we'll be glad to give you a free book written by John Piper called Coronavirus and Christ. We'll even allow you to pick up a, a few copies if you want to give a couple out to a, a friend who you might think could use this. It essentially unpacks the theology of what's going on around us these days and, and helps us navigate spiritually how to think through this and where to put our trust. Well, let me pray for our time together this morning. And Lord, we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ on the Navajo Reservation. We pray for, for their endurance, Lord. We pray for their testimony, Lord. We pray for their ministry. We pray, Christian or not, Lord, for them all. We pray for your provision and protection. We also pray, Lord, that you would use this no small trial to glorify your Son to make his name famous and glorious. We pray that some who have not yet trusted in this Savior Jesus would, in these dire circumstances, flee to him for salvation. Lord, we do that afresh this morning, all of us. As Christians, we, in worship, 
afresh come to taste and see the Lord is good. Afresh we come to rest in Jesus, our Sabbath. We're weary, Lord. We're heavy laden. And may we find sweet rest in our Jesus again today because he indeed is strong and glorious and marvelous and he is ours. We thank you for that. May we sing of him with great joy, great affection, and Lord, in great faith because your word has told us who he is and what he's done. Amen. Now hear this from Colossians chapter 1. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us again lift our voice and sing out to our Creator King. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Thou burning sun with golden beams. Thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh praise Him, oh praise Him, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Let all things, let all things their Creator bless. Him in humbleness, oh, praise Him, hallelujah, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one, oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, hallelujah. Washed by his blood, come and rejoice in his great love. Oh, praise him, hallelujah! Christ has defeated every sin, cast all your burdens now on him. 
great discerning power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to say, Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Oh, then who shall fall on bended knees? All creatures of our God and King. Hallelujah, oh, praise Him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let us behold our majestic God together, continue to recount His wonderful deeds and adore him. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All rises to rejoice Behold our God seated on his throne come let us adore him Behold our King nothing can compare come let us adore Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God, seated on His throne, come let us adore Him. Behold our King, nothing can compare, come let us adore sinful man God eternal humble to the grave Jesus Savior risen now to reign behold our God seated on his throne come let us adore Behold our King, 
Men, we will call and the ladies respond. Let's lead the way, men. You will reign forever. Yes, our glorious God, you are our great king. You are incomparable. You are beyond our wildest thoughts. Indeed, we cannot fathom your wondrous deeds. And we have nothing to teach you. And so, Lord, we have no reason to question you. Lord, you are a king. You are our father, our heavenly father. And Lord, we thank you that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us, not just as a father, but like, well, like a mother bird. It was just a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 91, Lord, that we were taught again, he will cover you with his pinions, his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Oh Lord, we're thankful for your gentleness with us. Your kindness to us, Lord. Your provision, your protection, your nearness. On this Mother's Day, Lord, we're thankful for your good gifts which reflect your good ways. We're thankful for moms, Lord. We're thankful for life and for families. We're thankful for the tender care of good moms, for their affection, Lord, for their discipline. We didn't enjoy it when we received it, but whatever we received that was good, Lord, you have used it, no doubt. Lord, we thank you for their instruction. From the small things like manners to the most big things, the biggest things, like our eternal souls. The admonition and the instruction of the Lord. We remember what Paul said to Timothy that his faith once dwelt in his mother and his grandmother. And he reminded Timothy of the things that he had learned from childhood, which were able to make him wise unto salvation, things from your word. And so, Lord, we pray for moms in the thick of it these days. We pray, Lord, first for their own walk with you. Lord, we pray that they would walk with you, pray to you, Read your word, and then they would pass it on. Lord, we pray for moms in their discipleship of their children, especially in these days when there is more time at home and more time together than maybe any time in most of our lifetimes. We pray for our moms. We pray for single moms. We pray for moms who are 
really about to pull their hair out with the last couple days of homeschooling. Lord, we pray for those moms throughout this summer where there'll be less to do than there was last summer. We pray it would be used by you, Lord, for these kids' salvation and their growth in you and for the connection between moms and dads and even dads and kids. That moms and kids and dads and their kids. Lord, we recognize as well that Mother's Day is not all happy and light and easy for everyone. There are those who are reminded this day that they have miscarried in this last year. But they have a son or daughter now in heaven or perhaps they have a son or daughter that is estranged. Perhaps they have strayed from you. There are those, Lord, who mourn this Mother's Day once again that they haven't yet born children. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for your nearness and your comfort. We pray for you to open the womb, if it be your will, we pray for families who are pursuing adoption. We pray for your provision for that. We pray for those, well, for those families and what you will do in days and years ahead as they train those new children in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. Lord, we thank you that in it all, you are our dwelling place, our shelter. You are our God. You are near to the brokenhearted, and you are the one who gives us joy and gives us every reason to give thanks to you and sing praises to your name, O Most High. Today, we once again declare your steadfast love in this morning, and we pray we would do the same by night. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me stand upon the rock, break my will and sin. Spare me from crushing below, now doubt to death bearing. Trembling, I declare the name of the one who came to save. Broken I fall helplessly On the one who died for me He was crushed so I could be Freed from sin Eternally rejected and afflicted He took my place, his enemy Now he stands victoriously My cornerstone, my shore. Upon the sun, despised by those he loved. Cast out, he was crucified. I shed his perfect blood. Guilty, my hands were stained. Washed by a whole. 
died for me He was crushed so I could be Freed from sin, eternally rejected and afflicted He took my place as enemy Now He stands victoriously My cornerstone, my surety Let me bow before the throne Kiss my Savior's feet Witness my eternal home Sing with the beat Sing it out Worthy is the Lamb who was slain To receive forever praise Broken I fall helplessly On the one who died for me He was crushed so I could be Freed from sin, eternally rejected and afflicted He took my place, His enemy Now He stands victoriously My cornerstone, my surety Amen well, if you've got your Bible, why don't you open that up to Psalm 93, and I want to say hello and happy Mother's Day if you're watching this on Mother's Day. I don't know what day you're watching this, uh, but we are uh, grateful for you moms, especially in times such as this. I know that I am grateful for my mom, my mother-in-law. I'm especially grateful for my wife, who is uh, the mother of our three-year-old daughter, but is also today 35 weeks pregnant with a little boy. So she deserves, I think, special honor today and is very much in need of your prayers. So please pray for us in that. But as I said, we're in Psalm 93. We are continuing in our series today through Psalms 90 to 100. So what we're going to do is I will read this Psalm, Psalm 93, and then we will discuss what it is that the Lord is trying to lead us to think about through this Psalm. So Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Lord, please be our rock in this time, and I pray that you would redeem any of those who have not yet put their trust in you for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like many of you, uh, lately I've been working from home 
And a few weeks ago, I was trying to tidy up and clear out my home office where I've been working. And, and as I was doing that, I came across some CDs, some really old CDs that I had made for my wife when we were still dating. Uh, so some of you know what I'm talking about. You boomers would probably call it a mixtape. Uh, you Gen Z kids, I, I don't even know. It's, it's like a Spotify playlist that you can only listen to in your car. It's complicated. But I used to make these CDs for my wife when we were dating, and, and I would spend a ton of time on them, and I would do it all the time. And so I was so excited to find these because I hadn't listened to them in years. And so I went, went right out to my car, and I put them in, and I listened to it. And I was just reminded at, of how good I was at making mixed CDs. I mean, it was it was wonderful. And there's really an art, right? If you've done this before, there is an art to putting together a good playlist, a good mixtape. If you've ever done this, you, you want the, the songs to have something in common, right? They need to go together, but they can't be too similar. There's got to be some variety. And, and if you're really good, you kind of are establishing a theme through the whole mixtape. And you can't just start out with the best songs. There's got to be kind of a progression and a flow from one song to the next. It's, it's, it's really a, a delicate process. And these psalms that we've been looking at, Psalms 92-100, they are very much like that. They are very much like an ancient playlist. They have been put together in a very intentional way for a very significant purpose. And in the same way, they have commonality. They share certain themes, and yet they have variety. There is a flow. There is a progression. So like Ryan said last week, Psalms 92-92 are something like the introduction. They're where the playlist starts uh, establishing some of the themes, hinting at some of the ideas that would be developed later. But this psalm, Psalm 93, I think, is when the playlist really starts jamming. And you see it from the very first line of Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. As we go through this series, we'll see that that is a phrase that's repeated again and again in these psalms. And really, this is the only place in the Bible where this phrase, the Lord or Yahweh reigns, constructed as it is. And all of these psalms think about the the righteous reign of God. So scholars have for a long time referred to these psalms as enthronement psalms. They praise God, they celebrate God for who he is seated on his throne as the king of all creation. So this idea of the Lord's reign, that's what we'll be looking at specifically in this psalm. And we'll break it up into three parts. In verses 1 to 2, we'll see that the Lord's reign is majestic. And in verses 3 and 4, we will see that his reign is mighty And then in verse 5, we will think about how the Lord's reign is merciful. So the Lord's reign is majestic, it is mighty, and it is merciful. So let's look at that first point. The Lord's reign is majestic. Verse 1 begins, as I said, with our proclamation. The Lord reigns. One scholar said that this phrase should really always be translated with an exclamation point because it is a proclamation. It's like they still do in Britain today. They say, long live the king. It's something like that. And then it goes on to say that the Lord is robed in majesty. He is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. And I'm afraid that word majesty might be a word that we 
just skip over really quickly. We think, well, that's just one more pretty word that the Bible uses, and we don't really stop to think about what it means. In fact, I don't know if we know what it means. Majesty is not a word that we really use very often. If you're like me, the first thing you think about is Purple Mountains from the song, Purple Mountains, Majesty, and yeah, that might be helpful. Mountains are majestic, aren't they? What does that mean? It means that they're, they're beautiful, but, but it's not just that they're beautiful, it's that they're big. They are impressive, they are imposing, they are proud, dominant, they are awe-inspiring, awesome in that old sense of the word. Charles V, when he ascended to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire in the 16th century, and he basically became like the king of everything, he thought that his rule was so great that he needed a whole new title. Up to that point, kings in Europe had been referred to as your highness, but he thought he was higher than all the highnesses, and so he needed a new word, and so he asked everyone to call him your majesty, which was a word at that time that had the meaning of being supreme in authority, being gloriously lifted up over everyone else, and so everyone else could be called your highness, but he alone was your majesty. Until a few years later when Henry VIII thought that that sounded really good, and so then he had everyone call him your majesty, and, and they still do that in the UK today, but, but that gives you something of the sense of this word majesty, only if you think about it, Charles V, Henry VIII, they're like kids playing in their dad's shoes when it comes to this idea of majesty. What does our text say? Yahweh is robed in majesty. It's not just that he is majestic. He can, he can take the quality of majesty itself and wrap it around him like a garment. It's not just that he's strong. He takes strength itself and ties it around his waist to gird up his armor. When we read these phrases of this kind of clothing, what we're supposed to think about is a king, a monarch robed in military regalia. And this isn't like some old king that's, you know, wearing his officer's uniform, but you know he's not actually going to go fight anybody. No, this is, this is Yahweh suiting up to do battle. This word majesty Isaiah uses often to describe God in, in his judgment and in his wrath coming to lay low his lofty enemies. Yahweh truly is the supreme authority is what these texts are trying to say, and, and more than that, he always has been. So calling this an enthronement psalm, I think it can be a bit misleading, because enthronement implies taking a throne, as if there was almost a time where the Lord was not on the throne, and then he, then he came to sit on the throne, but that's not it at all. Look at verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You, Lord, are from everlasting. We're at the end of verse 1. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. What these verses are saying together, that, that God is and has always been the supreme ruler. And more than that, he is the uncreated creator. His throne has always been established because God is from everlasting. There has never been a time where God has not been and God has not been king. The supreme authority. 
Even before the world existed, we saw this in Psalm 90, this theme already arising at the very beginning. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God's throne eternally existed apart from creation, and it was from this supreme, majestic throne that God ordered the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then they came into being. God is transcendent from his creation. He is independent over it, and he is sovereign. And what's really amazing is that in the New Testament, these New Testament authors, these, these early Christians, they took the same exalted language and applied it to Jesus of Nazareth. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Or Colossians 1, which Ryan read earlier in our service, it it talks about our being transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and then it says, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that incredible? That these New Testament authors would take such clearly Yahwistic language and apply it to Jesus. And they make the same point that Psalm 93 does, that Jesus was before all things. He, with the Father and the Spirit, created all things, and they sit on the throne even now, ruling all things. Therefore, the psalmist asserts, again, as I said in verse 1, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Why does he say that? Why does he say the world will never be moved? Well, we don't know the the circumstances under which this psalm was originally written. We don't know what was going on, but, but I don't wonder if this songwriter, when he was putting together this poem, didn't have something going on, whether in his life or in the life of all of his people, that felt like maybe the world was moving a little bit. Maybe there was some difficult or frightening circumstances that were going on that made it feel as if the very foundations of the earth were starting to shake. And what does he remind himself of? That those foundations, the foundations of the earth are sunk much deeper into something much more stable. The ever-existent, sovereign, majestic reign of the creator God. He says, no, the world will never be moved because it has been established by his majesty, the Lord. And so that gives him comfort that leads into our next point, verses three and four, the Lord's reign is mighty. I think verse three moves into a poetic metaphor that describes those scary circumstances that he might have been going through or knew that would be coming. And he says, the floods The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. 
So he uses this imagery of floods, of, of flood waters. And notice that there's a progression that, that the, the floods lift up. They lift up their voice and then they're roaring. They're getting louder and louder. Why is he using this water language? Well, it's important to remember in his time and in his context as, as a Hebrew what their view and understanding of water was, especially the seas. You've got to remember that the Hebrews were not seafaring people. They were land lovers. They did not build boats. Yes, they fished on the Sea of Galilee, but that's really more like a lake. They did not have anything to do with the Mediterranean Sea, with the Great Sea, as they called it. It it scared them. It intimidated them. They were not explorers. They liked the, the little plot of land that God had given them, and they wanted to stay right there. And if you think about it, for them, as for us, the sea is is scary. It's mysterious, isn't it? Have you ever had that moment where you're in uh, the sea or in a lake and, and it just dawns on you that you have no idea what's beneath you? It's frightening. And I think even more for these ancient peoples because they really didn't know what all was in there, but they would sometimes see corpses of giant animals washed up on the beach and they were like, yes, there are monsters out there. I am staying on the ground. And more than that, the sea itself was uncontrollable. You can't contain the sea. You can't capture the sea. It goes where it wants to do. Even today with our own modern technologies, we have very little control over oceans or floods. And in that, the sea is powerful. Think of the destructive forces that come from a flood or a storm or a tsunami. So water was scary to the Hebrews. And so they would use this language of floods and of seas to fill in for all kinds of of other symbols and ideas that they were afraid of. It became a very common metaphor to represent rival nations that were rising up with their armies and pounding against the borders of Israel. It came also to stand for these nations' false gods, many of whom were deified personifications of the sea or the storm. But most of all, for Israel and for their neighbors, this this idea of the sea or the deep, the waters, it came to represent nothing less than complete chaos. Powerful, untamable forces in life that seemed to be just the unraveling of all of the peace and all of the stability, all of the order that we had come to count on. It's those moments and those things in life that feel like they've just pulled the rug right out from underneath you and you don't even know which way is up anymore. It's those things that make everything seem uncertain, scary. Does it sound familiar to anyone? But really, many of us have been acquainted with chaos even before the days of COVID-19. And we know that these forces of uncertainty will continue even after this crisis is over. There is a kind of chaos that comes into your life when you get a terminal diagnosis. There's a kind of chaos that ensues when you unexpectedly lose your job. There's a kind of chaos that comes crashing in when someone that you love and someone that you counted on betrays you. It feels like something uncontrollable has just come in and washed away all of your stability. 
It upends everything that you have ever known. And you say the, the floods are rising. They're lifting up their voice. It feels like the earth is beginning to move underneath you, but God's throne is established from of old. And the Lord's reign is mighty. Look at verse four. Mightier. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. What a, what a promise. When it feels like everything is sinking down. When it seems like everything is pounding against us. No, God is stronger. And notice there's a progression here too. At first it was flood waters and now it is many waters and then it's the waves of the sea and what this is saying is that you take whatever scary thing there is whatever waves of the ocean there might be and you multiply them by any factor that you like God is still stronger because God is outside of those waters indeed God is sovereign over those waters. His throne is established and he stands to rule every force of evil that might come against us. So when, when bad things happen to us, when chaos is introduced into our life, that is when we are so tempted to wonder if, if maybe God has failed. Maybe God is, is not as sovereign as I thought that he was. Maybe God has been knocked off of his throne. But it's in fact the exact opposite. Even when these evil things come, we know that God is sovereign over even this. And that doesn't make them not evil. There's something of a mystery here. But, but we remember, even if we don't understand, that God is in control of every difficulty. And he is able to use it and redeem it for his good purposes. Why? Because his throne is an eternal throne. It has been established in the world will not be moved. I think of the book of Job when God talks about when he was making the seas and he says, your waves can come this far and no farther. He holds the oceans in his hands. I mean, isn't this an incredible hope for us? Where else can we turn for this kind of hope? So I wonder, what are you hoping in? It brings to mind for me the metaphor that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus compares one who built his house on a rock to one who built his house on sand. You remember what Jesus says there in this word picture? He says, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat against both of those houses. And the one who had built his house on the rock, what happened? It stood secure. But the one that had built their house on the sand, their house fell. And Jesus says, great was the fall of it. Maybe for some of us, it's taken a global pandemic for us to realize that we really had the foundations of our life sunk into something that could easily be swept away by a flood. Maybe that was your job, your money, your health, your relationships, the floods came and the wind blew and it feels for you like everything just fell down. Well then for you and for all of us, we need to remember that the Lord alone is mightier than the thunders of many waters. 
So we need to make him our foundation and then we, we cannot be shaken by the forces of chaos. So the Lord's reign is majestic, it is mighty, and lastly we will see that it is merciful. In verse 5. Now, I hesitated to title this point, The Lord's Reign is Merciful, because there's nothing overtly about mercy in this verse 5. But, but as we meditate on this verse, as we really think about what this verse is saying, I do think that it arouses in us, at least it does for me, our need for God's mercy. And then if we expand our view to the whole story of the Bible and God's righteous reign in Jesus Christ, then we realize that that God's reign is indeed merciful, blessedly merciful. So look at verse 5. He says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, Lord, forevermore. Now I wonder, as I was reading this whole psalm, just a few minutes ago, if when we got to verse 5, it seems like an abrupt transition to you. It did for me on my first reading. It almost seems like a non sequitur, right? Like, this doesn't follow. I don't understand the logic that has led in the first four verses to this idea in verse 5. But that's the, the wonderful thing about poetry, especially Hebrew poetry. What you're supposed to do with, with poetry is, is think about it. And when you come across in a poem two ideas that are stuck together and, you, and they don't seem like they fit together, that's not an accident. That poet is asking you to think really hard about what the connection between those two things might be. So this psalmist, as he is writing this song, this poem, what he's saying is there is an integral connection between God's majesty and his might on one side and God's trustworthy decrees and his holiness on the other. And it's up to us to do that work of thinking what that relationship might be. And, and once you see it, I think you'll realize it's, it's brilliant. So let's take both of those statements in turn. First, again, he says, your decrees are very trustworthy. So that line is connecting God's majesty and his might to his word. The same word that God pronounced from his eternal throne by which he made the heavens and the earth. And do you remember what he made the heavens and the earth out of? This is, this is so cool. Out of water. In Genesis chapter 1, do you remember this? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God fluttering is the word, like a, like a bird, like a mother bird. Remember Psalm 91, fluttering over the face of the waters. And then what happens? God speaks. He says, let there be light. And there was light coming up out of this chaotic deep. So even in the very creation story, we read that and we see it as a story of God creating order out of chaos by the power of his word through the Holy Spirit. And then it's this same word that God gives to his people in the form of decrees. That's the word that the psalmist uses in Psalm 93, 5. Pronouncements, commandments. This is his instruction for how we are to live in the world he created. So God established the world from his throne and now he tells us how to live in it. And friend, let me say, that is a mercy in and of itself. 
God has not left us alone in this world that he made to try and figure out what we're supposed to do or even to try and figure out what he is like. God has not left us in the dark. He has spoken to us. He has revealed to us what he is like and what his will is for us and what he has spoken. What does the psalmist say? It's trustworthy. It's good. It's right. It is worth obeying. Do you believe that? Coming to put your faith completely in God is to recognize that God is the king and you are not. Which means that you don't get to live by your own decrees any longer. You live by God's. God makes the rules. And I get it. That's scary. That can be really scary. That is nothing less than giving up the control that you have known your whole life. And so you might ask, how do you know that you can trust God? How do you know that what God wants for you is really what's best for you? Especially when following God's decrees means that you have to give up something that you really value. Or obeying God's commandments means that you have to do something that, that seems like it's going to be really painful. Is that really better than me continuing to rule my own life and go about it my own way? Wasn't that basically what Satan was saying to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Are you sure you can trust God's good commandments are you sure God's not holding out on you I think he is why don't you just reach out and take with your hand something that God has prohibited and then you'll really have life in a way every sin that each of us commits is at its heart just a failure to trust that God's decrees are good to fall into that same pattern that our first parents fell into but God's decrees are trustworthy. I love the logic that this psalm is establishing. It's saying, look, God made the world in majesty, in might. He made everything. He made you. So he knows how it works. He knows the right way to live in this life way more than you do. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. He is so much wiser than we are. He is trustworthy. Even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense, he knows what's best for us. And to doubt his trustworthiness would be to like have the manufacturer's instruction manual and then say, I don't know that they know what they're talking about. I might know better than he does how I ought to live my life. I mean, it's, it's just foolish. Do you get the logic, the argument that he's making? And this is what Jesus says when he's talking about the guy that builds his house on the rock and the one that builds his house on the sand. He says, whoever listens to my words and does them, he is the one that builds his house on the rock. To not listen to my trustworthy decrees is to build your house on the sand and it is you that will fall. God's decrees are trustworthy, and, and it's so great. Psalm 93, verse 5, it's really a testimony. This is a statement that's coming from the psalmist's experience. He has someone that has studied God's decrees, has committed his life to living by God's decrees, and he has found out what every faithful person has found out, that, that it's true. God's decrees really are trustworthy. 
They are good, okay? This, this book has so much wisdom contained in it. So much peace, so much joy, comfort for you because this is God commanding us how to live rightly in the world that he made. This is his instructions. This is Psalm 119 language, praising God for the gift that he has given us in his word and commending us to live by it, to trust it. So, so I'll ask you, do you trust God's decrees? I wonder if there's someone watching this or listening to this and, and you know that you're not. Maybe you've never trusted in God's decrees or maybe you have in the past and right now you are wavering in a certain area. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna just tell you that that's wrong, although it is, right? Do you, do you get that? To go against God's decrees is rebellion. That's, that's what sin is. But, but no, let's, let's think about this another way. I'll just ask you, if you have been living by your own decrees for some time now, you have been blatantly disobeying what you know to be God's will, how's it going for you? How's living according to your own rules working out? I think if you stop and you really just reflect on the state of your life, you'll realize that your, your decrees are really not very trustworthy, are they? They shift all the time, and, and as you make your own rules, you find that all you get is more and more chaos. As you look at the, the situations in your life, there's just a string of regrets behind you, broken relationships, meaninglessness, and instability. Does that mark your life? Even if it looks like everything's okay on the outside, do you feel that chaos on the inside? That's because chaos is all you get from your sin, from disobeying God's trustworthy decrees. Why? Because you are not majestic. You are not mighty. You do not and you cannot sit on the throne. You don't have control. And so all that happens when you try to control your life and live as the king of it is you get in over your head and the floods rise up. Only God's decrees are trustworthy. And the Lord's reign is merciful. So look at this last line. Holiness befits your house, Lord, forevermore. Holiness. Holiness is a word, if you're not familiar with it, that, that describes a kind of distinctiveness, a kind of purity, um, even, even a moral purity. In the Bible, God is set up as the standard and the definition of what holiness is. He is described as perfect in holiness, and, and he is repeatedly referred to as holy, holy, holy. And verse 5 is saying that God's house is holy. His house is the place where his throne is. So for the psalmist, that would be typified by the, the tabernacle or the temple. But really, we would know that the substance of his throne is in the heavenly throne room. And really, by extension, the whole, the whole earth is his footstool. That God sits on his throne and holiness befits the house in which his throne is is placed, befits, it is appropriate. It would be inappropriate for anything unholy to be brought into his house. And that includes unholy people. 
people who have made themselves unholy by not keeping God's trustworthy decrees, which is all of us. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet has a vision where he is brought into the, the heavenly throne room. He sees God seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and he says it's majestic. His, his train fills the whole temple. There is smoke, there is loud thunder, there are seraphim, these spiritual beings flying around God's head, and night and day they just sing over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole place is shaking when God speaks. And Isaiah, who really for the first time appreciates the Lord in his majesty and in his might, has the only response that any human can really have when they stand before the throne of God. Do you remember what he says? Woe to me! I am undone. I am lost because I am a sinner. I am unclean. Psalm 93 doesn't use this language per se, but another common use of flood language throughout the Hebrew scriptures is language of judgment. You think of Noah and the flood. You think of the Red Sea and and this ocean coming in to crush God's enemies. The floods often describe the wrath of God that will completely destroy rebels and sinners that stand against God. And it, and it makes sense even with this psalm. If God is mightier than the many waters, then he can command the waters to crush his enemies. But that language when it's used, it's only a metaphor. It's human words trying to grasp at the, the terror that is the wrath of God that is due for all of those that have disobeyed his decrees. And Isaiah was, in that moment, made acutely aware of God's mighty wrath. And so he says, I'm a dead man. And what does God do? What does the Lord who sits on his mighty, majestic throne do to this man that has fallen down in complete confession and honesty about his sinful nature? God cleans him. God asks an angel to go to Isaiah and to touch him with a coal that was taken from an altar where a sacrifice was burning. And Isaiah is made clean. He suddenly is holy and so is befitting God's holy house. In the same way, the psalmist that wrote Psalm 93, he knows that if he wants to enter into God's house, it has to be by means of a sacrifice, that he is unholy in himself, and so this animal will have to symbolically die, suffer the wrath that he deserves so that he can be made holy and enter into God's holy house. But do you see how in that the Lord's reign is merciful? Yes, he is holy. Holiness befits his house. And so he says, because I'm holy, I will make you holy so that you can come into my presence. It's wonderful. And we know that, that these sacrifices that these Old Testament saints are referring to, they're just, they're just a picture of the true sacrifice that would come in Jesus Christ. 
And so this is, this is where all of these strands start coming together. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing when you, when you broaden your scope and look at the whole story of the Bible because throughout the whole Bible, there's this theme of, of God being the king and God wanting to make a kingdom of people, of people through whom he will bless the whole world and, and redeem and renew the creation. But as God looks at, at his choices, all he sees are unholy people, people that could never enter into his presence, that could never be in his kingdom. They don't deserve to be part of God's majestic, mighty reign. They just deserve to be part of his wrath. And yet the Lord is merciful. And so what does he do? He says, I am holy. You are not. I will make you holy if you will submit to me as your king. And so he sends his son. He sends his son. The same majestic son that we were talking about that that from Colossians 1 is is before all things and and above all things, through whom all things were created and who holds everything together. This this Jesus, this the son of God who is in the very form of God. Think of Philippians 2, who did not hold on to his equality with God, but he gave it up. And he took the form of a servant. He was born in human form. He He gave off his majesty and came in the line of an earthly king yes in the line of king david but but a kingly line that had lost all of its grandeur so instead of being robed in majesty jesus was suddenly robed in human frailty and and wrapped in swaddling cloths and lied in a manger and then he grew up and isaiah says in isaiah 53 that as he grew up like a young plant like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isn't this mind-blowing that the majestic son of God seated on the throne gave up, his majesty came and had no majesty and yet he was still the almighty King Jesus. We know that because as he lived his life, he kept on doing these things with his disciples that only Yahweh could do. Have you ever wondered why so many of Jesus' miracles had to do with water? It's not like he was looking around and he's like, well, let's see, what do I have to work with here? No. He walks on the water. He calms a storm. Why? Psalm 93. Jesus, this mighty king, came in announcing that the kingdom of God was near, manifested in himself. And as he lived his life proclaiming the kingdom, he never once doubted God's trustworthy decrees. He was obedient even as the waters rose up around him. He was obedient, Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death on a cross. And this is the most profound thing at all of all that Jesus our mighty king the one who who calmed the storm would let himself be conquered would let the whole world rise and pound against him and nail him to a cross where he suffered the wrath he he was plunged under the flood of the judgment of God for us, in our place, as our sacrifice, so that we could be made holy and live with God. He died, and they put him in the grave. 
what we symbolize by baptism, going under the water. And then he was raised. He came up out of the grave, just as we come up out of the water and then we leave it behind. Jesus left the grave behind and in doing, he proved that he was the one that was mightier than many waters. You remember what he says at the end of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now. Go, therefore, and extend my reign to all of the nations that they may be subdued like you under the power of my trustworthy word. And then he ascended. He rose back up into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God even right now where he rules and he reigns with his father in majesty. There's just this incredible vision. Pastor Ryan pointed this out to me this week from the book of Revelation where we get a picture from the apostle John of the throne room. And it's the throne room after the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as John describes this heavenly throne room, it's very similar to Isaiah's description. He sees God lifted up, there's smoke, there's noise, there's angels flying around singing holy, holy, holy. But John adds a new detail. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Do you understand what that means? This is more poetic language. What he's saying is that before God's throne, there is a sea, a massive sea, and it's completely calm. There's no waves. It's so calm, it looks like flat glass because the Lord is mightier than the many waters and he has them subdued under his righteous reign. And it may not feel like it for you, but know that this is true right now that the Lord reigns over our chaos and he will reign forever, amen? And not just that he reigns, but Jesus ever lives to make peace by the blood of his cross. That's what we read in Colossians 1. He ever lives to make peace by the blood of his cross, reconciling unholy sinners to their holy God. So that not on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ and his sacrifice, we can enter into God's house. Even more, we are God's house. I mean, this is incredible. By God's word, he has made a new creation out of the chaos of our own lives. And he has made us his holy temple where he dwells. And so we read like in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that good news? We have already established that God can help when the flood waters rise up in our lives. God is mightier. He is from old. His throne is established and it won't be shaken. And so any trouble that we encounter in this life, he can help us. And we have confidence to approach him in his holy house and say, God, help me because of Jesus. Do you believe this? If you don't, I beg you that, that you would. The Lord reigns. This is true. Stop trying to reign in his place. You cannot withstand him. But you can have peace with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave up his majesty 
so that you could have it. And if you have believed in this, then I just encourage you to, to proclaim this all over again. The Lord reigns. And you can pray to him. And you can say, oh Lord, reign over my chaos. Reign over the troubles and difficulties in my life, Lord. Help me to obey your trustworthy decrees when I'm tempted to doubt them. And Lord, help me. Help me to walk in the holiness that befits your house. You can pray those prayers to God and you can know that you are praying to a God who sits on his throne and will never, never leave it. The Lord reigns over all creation. He reigns over all of our lives. And, and I'll close with this. He, he will reign forever until that day where he comes to complete his reign. His reign was was from of old and, and it took a new, a, a new turn in, in the coming of Christ, proclaiming the kingdom and the work of Christ in that throne room, but there will come a day when the Lord does come to wipe away all the causes of chaos and unholiness in this world. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth. And this, from the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 describes that new heavens and new earth like this. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And that day, those waters not only will be still, but they will be removed and there will be no chaos, only perfect rest with our Lord who reigns in majesty and might and mercy. Let's pray to that God. God, we thank you for this amazing gospel that you have secured for us the only hope that we have in a life that is so unstable. God, thank you for your sovereignty even over things that, that overwhelm us and terrify us. God, I pray that we would all with confidence through the blood of Jesus Christ approach you and ask for help in times of need and be so grateful for the grace that we have received, Lord, that we would praise you like this psalmist and say, you reign, you reign, God, and you will always reign. You have always reigned and you will always reign. Lord, I pray if anyone is not submitted to your reign, if they are still rebelling against you, Lord, that you would convince them of the trustworthiness of your decrees, and that they would repent, they would be like Isaiah and confess that they are undone, and Lord, they would find you to be merciful. And Lord, that we would all trust you and walk in the holiness that befits your house until that day where you come and you make everything new. And that hope we pray. Amen. If you've been joining us, then you know that we've been singing through these psalms alongside studying them together. So once again today, let us consider Psalm 93. Let us sing, let us proclaim together that the Lord reigns. in majesty reigning faithfully strength surrounds you are forever king holy is your throne everlasting one you won't be moved ruler of all things 
The floods lift up their voice, thundering their praise. The mighty waves rejoice. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Mighty our God, your name we praise. The Lord reigns. The your throne come into your own everlasting one our servant king humble to the cross rising glorious Jesus you rule over everything let all the church proclaim thundering their praise exalting Jesus name the Lord reigns the Lord reigns mighty our God your name we praise the Lord reigns the continue to lift our voices and proclaim our God holy. And is and 
Thou art holy, there is none beside Thee, perfect in power and love and purity. Let your voice sing holy. shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Now it's it's so right, isn't it, to to sing those words to our holy God. It just it befits his house, doesn't it? That that kind of praise ascribing to them that holiness. It it makes me want to be with all of you, church, that we could sing that together. And even more, it should make us want to be with, with the whole church throughout time and with those seraphim and with those cherubim to be in the presence of God at the foot of his throne and to praise him, to praise him as perfect in power and love and purity as merciful and mighty, blessed Trinity. If you haven't put your trust in this holy, merciful God, you can do that right now. You can, you can repent of your rebellion and say, yes, Lord, I will submit to your wonderful reign and let you be majestic and mighty in my heart. And if you have questions about that, if you need help with that, like Ryan said, please reach out to us. We would be happy. We would love to talk with you about what it would mean to enter into the kingdom of the beloved son. You can do that. Please let us help you. And, and for those of us who, who are in that kingdom and who have this hope, may we hold fast in that hope. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.